All right, you guys hear me? All right, let's take our seats. You guys can go ahead and have a seat, and uh, we'll stand in a few minutes as we read God's Word, but um, let me begin in prayer. Father, we, we come before you this, this morning, and we, uh, Lord, we thank you for who you are and uh, for this Advent season in particular where... Uh, we spend a whole month thinking about the incarnation when uh, you became one of us through your son, um, where the second member of the Godhead came and really did dwell among us for 33 years. Uh, Lord, it's easy to forget that the God of the universe actually came and, and lived a, a human life, a very human life. Um, you were among us and with us in our daily experience of life. And Lord, we thank you for that, uh, that that was the way you chose to save us. And so uh, this morning, would you uh, remind us anew of our need to have you as Lord and Savior over all of our lives, not just part of our life. Um, Jesus, you are worth everything. And Lord, your call of following you is not minimalistic. Uh, you require everything from us because you're worth it. There's nothing else in this world more important than you. There's nothing more true. There's nothing more beautiful. Uh, Jesus, you are more important and significant than anything else in our daily lives. And we ask that this morning would be a reminder that to follow you, to live in your presence, to be your children is not a small part of our life, Lord. It is to encompass everything. If we lose our lives for your sake and the gospels, we save it. If we keep our lives in this world for ourselves, we lose it. Father, we need you this morning. We ask, Jesus, that you would renew us, that you would grow us, that you would be with us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, this, uh, Sam started our Advent season last week, and for the next month, we're going to be looking at this idea of fulfillment, this idea that uh, this whole month that we celebrate the Advent season is about the idea that God has fulfilled his promises of sending us a Savior, a real Savior. Last week, Sam talked about the idea that the, the promise that, that the, the Savior would come in a, through a virgin birth was actually fulfilled. It actually happened, and he explained why that's important. This morning, I'm going to be looking at the idea that not only was our Savior born of a virgin birth, but he was an actual child, a baby, an actual human. Uh, he wasn't a superhuman, in a sense. He is fully God and fully man, but, but the, the part of his personhood, his humanness, was full. It was real. He lived an actual human life. 
And we're going to see why it matters that he was actually a human being, fully human, just like us. Without sin, but still human like you and I. There's going to be two things we see of why that's important, that he was actually a human being and not some angel or heavenly being or or spirit, but he had flesh and bones. He walked among us. He lived the life we live. Two reasons that's important we're going to see this Advent season. One that we'll look at first is we actually needed someone to live the perfect human life that you and I can't. We needed someone to live the perfect human life that you and I try to live, but we can't. We also needed this Savior to be a real human because we needed someone who could give hope to the dark and mundane experiences and circumstances of our life. All of us experience the mundane. All of us experience darkness in our lives, and we need hope. And we're going to see that Jesus living a a human life actually gives us that hope. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in in, uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 6. And why don't we stand as we read these verses. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus lived as a true Israelite. He lived the perfect life that you and I were meant to live. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, he was, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the religious priests and teachers of religious law, and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And here he's quoting Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be shepherd for my people Israel. You can have a seat. So, the scene in our text this morning is pretty striking. Uh, What you have is this leading group of Israelites. This leading group of Israelites in the center of what it meant to be an Israelite in Jerusalem. And they're having this meeting. Why? Why are they meeting? Because they're disturbed. They're overwhelmed, they're confused as to what is actually going on. There's reports of their Messiah, their Jewish Lord, their Jewish Savior, their Jewish King coming into the world. And it's causing a huge stir in the community. People are wondering, what does this mean? People are upset. Um, Of course, the irony of this is that it, it is the Jewish people themselves who should be the most excited about this news. They were the ones that God chose in the beginning to be his special people. Uh, they, were, they were the ones who were supposed to live out 
God's commands for what it means to live as a, a, a human to the fullest of what God intended. Um, they, they were to uh, live out the purity of God's law and perfection for themselves personally, but they were also supposed to be a light for all of the nations, a priesthood through which God would, would save the world. So God wasn't just intending to have the Israelites, and that's it. His goal was to work through them into the world. And the irony is, for centuries and centuries and centuries, uh, the, the Israelites tried on their own strength to live that way, to follow God's commands, to live under his laws, to love him and him only, to have no other gods before him, uh, to love their neighbor as their self, uh, and, and to be a light for the Gentiles. And the story of Israel is that in each of those categories, loving the Lord their God above all other gods, loving their neighbor as their self, and being a light for the Gentiles, what do we know of the history of Israel? How did that go? <laughs> it didn't go very well. It didn't go very well, and you see God intervening in judgment and restoration over and over again. Wake up, people of Israel. Do you know what it means to be an Israelite? You're, you're to be my people. You're to be the representatives of me in the world so people can see who I am and extend salvation to all the ends of the earth, and they weren't doing that. And so you would think that the coming of the Messiah, especially their Jewish Messiah, would be a cause for celebration. What should have happened is one of those big feasts they would commemorate special events on. They would fill Jerusalem with food and celebration and dancing and wine. That doesn't happen here. That's not what happens. There is not celebration. And part of why I think that's the case, because Jesus alludes to this in his later ministry, is that the, the, the leading Jewish people of that time had started to get things backwards. See? they had started to fall into a pattern that I think all of us can relate to at some level. And it goes like this. If I just do enough, if I just act a certain way, if, I'm, if I can just do the right duties and right responsibilities and right good deeds, then I'm going to be okay. Um, then I can be my own savior. I can be my own Lord. I won't need anybody else to intervene and help me. If I can just be good enough, by whatever standard that is, if, if I can just attain that level of goodness of my own doing, a good worker, a good citizen, a good father, a good husband, a good boyfriend, a good girlfriend, a good whatever you name it, if I can just do those things, then I will have established myself in this world. In this day with the Israelites, it was God's law. Not only were they trying to keep God's law, but they, as, as Jesus calls them out for, they had added all kinds of stuff to it. What they thought was needed to be good. God's law, in some ways, wasn't good enough. They needed to add even more to be really, really good. And so as we can see, this is, this is a threat to them as a people, as the Israelites. Because I think they knew deep down that what this meant was... Their attempts at being good had failed and God was sending a savior, a rescuer. Because so much of the Old Testament that they knew by heart was pointing to this day when God himself would appear as the Messiah 
and rescue them and save them from their sin and waywardness and restore them into a new land, a new people, a new hope, a new future. But it was going to be God himself who was going to do that saving through his righteousness and his goodness. In fact, what you see a theme through the Old Testament is it's always talking about God's goodness, God's righteousness that's going to come into the world through the Messiah. Not the people's goodness and righteousness. And so what this means to every human heart is, oh no, I can't do it myself. I, I, have to, I have to submit to someone else's goodness and someone else's righteousness. In fact, if you've read the book of Romans, Paul unpacks this beautifully in chapters 9 and 10, where he talks about the people of Israel, of himself, he was an Israelite, refused to submit to God's righteousness. They wanted to establish their own. Their heart did not want to need someone else to save them. So on this scene, Jesus has come, and the hope of Israel is on the line. And what we've seen through the, the, the story of Israel is that no one in Israel, or the surrounding nations at that time, were able to live out what God intended for the perfect human life that God required of us as people. They weren't putting God first above everything and worshiping him only the land was full of what? It was full of idols all throughout their history. And that's, it's going against that command. They weren't loving God with all their heart. It was being full of idols. Is our culture, our world, is it full of idols as well? In addition, were they loving their neighbors as themselves? Were they were treating others as they would want to be treated as Jesus talks about this fulfilling of the law and the prophets is you treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. Were they doing that as a people throughout history? And were they being a light to the Gentiles or were they excluding the Gentiles from the temple? So we come down to Jesus and what we find in Jesus and in his life is that he was the one person who actually lived as a true Israelite. If you look at the things he said and the way he lived and what he taught, what you see is he's actually on a mission to fulfill what it meant to be an Israelite, what it meant to be a child of God, a person of God, God's own people. And I remember this fascinating insight that one of my seminary professors made a few years ago talked about in the grand scheme of things that in Jesus' time when he was walking on earth, Israel boiled down to one person. Jesus became Israel itself and lived out perfectly without sin what it meant to be God's original plan for the people of Israel. That they would love God about, what does Jesus say to Satan when he says, worship me and you can have all this. Bow your knee to me, not to the Father, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. What does Jesus say to him? He says, no, flee from me. Jesus loved the Father perfectly. No idols interfered. Jesus loved his neighbor as he loved himself. We see that through so many examples throughout the Gospels, especially when he's doing it for people who would have been considered outcasts of that day. And Jesus himself was the one who started the mission to the Gentiles. 
In fact, when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple, maybe for some of you going through Advent readings, uh, that story has come up, and in in ours it has. What part of the temple was he clearing out when he overturns the money tables? What had the Jews overtaken in the temple? It was the court of the Gentiles. So they had filled the area that was supposed to be for the Gentiles with things that were not of God at all, trying to make profit, trying to use people to get gain. And Jesus clears out that entire room as a way of saying, this is for the nations. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. And you're using it for profit. So Israel boils down to one person, to Jesus Christ, who perfectly lives out the law. And here's the thing, is that it wasn't just Israel who needed a Savior, a true Israelite, to live out God's perfection that he required of humans in the world. It wasn't just the people of Israel who needed that perfect human life. I think if we're honest, all of us in this room, this Advent season, would admit that our story is actually a lot like the Israelites as well. Maybe you don't feel that way, but I'll just say I do. I look at my life up to this point, I'm now 40, and so much of Israel's story in those three categories I just mentioned, heart for God, heart for others, I have failed innumerable amount of times. And so I look at the story of Jesus and say, I don't think his life was needed just for the people of Israel who were in this meeting with Herod rejecting him. And the plot to destroy him actually started when he was an infant, not when he was in his 30s. I I look at my life and think, man, I, I need this as well because so much of my life is also spent trying to create my own goodness or despairing of my badness. I need someone else. I need someone's perfection out there to come into me because internally I can't generate it or accomplish it on my own, and I've tried. I've really tried, especially as a Christian. I have tried really hard to be good. C.S. Lewis captures this really well. Does anyone like C.S. Lewis in this room? Only a couple of us. That's too bad. (laughs) So, here's what he's... So, In my opinion, C.S. Lewis is the best Christian author when it comes to addressing the human heart and how it works in these areas. He's incredibly insightful. And it's interesting that he, he lived through Nazi Germany. So he got to see humanity in our generation at its worst. And I think some of his, his uh, insights came from that. He was also in the, in the first war himself. Um, but this is what he talks about. He talks about this tension between trying to be our own goodness, have our own goodness and not relying on Christ and how we all have a propensity toward that. And he writes this. The sense, the sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ. Trust that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion. 
that Christ will make the man more like himself and in a sense make good his deficiencies. If you like to put it that way, Christ offers something for nothing. He even offers everything for nothing. In a sense, the whole Christian life consists in accepting that very remarkable offer. But the difficulty is to reach the point of recognizing that we all have done and can do is nothing. That all we can do or have done is nothing. What we should have liked would be for God to count our good points and ignore our bad ones. What he's getting at there is that the tendency of our hearts and my heart is to want God to, rather than me completely fall on him for righteousness and goodness and and the perfect human life I can't live, I would rather him look at my life and reward me for the good things and kind of ignore the bad things and hope in the end that I will have achieved some pinnacle of goodness. Because it's, it's, it's humiliating and humbling to fall on the knees of Jesus and say, I can't create goodness and righteousness on my own. Even though I'm a middle-class, comfortable American living in New England with all the comforts of life, I, I still can't achieve that level of goodness I want. Because here's the thing, it's not just the cross that saves us. The cross is central to our salvation, but so is the life of Jesus, his righteousness. Because when we receive Jesus into our life through the Holy Spirit, when we finally get to the point of recognizing our need for another's goodness, because we can't do it, we bow our knees before Jesus and say, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. Not only does the Holy Spirit give us the forgiveness that Jesus accomplished on the cross for all of our sin. He credits that to our account. He infuses our life with forgiveness of sin. But he doesn't do just that. He gives us the very righteousness of Christ himself. It comes into our life. It's not something we've earned, not something we've attained. But it's, it's, it's also what's needed to save us. Because here's the thing, if it was just forgiveness of sin we needed, that would get us to a morality of zero. Forgiveness of sin... You're at zero in terms of morality, righteousness, purity, holiness. No, we need the fullness of Jesus' righteousness, purity, and life to be accepted by God. And the Holy Spirit gives us Jesus' obedience and perfection as well, as C.S. Lewis talks about. So what we see is it matters that Jesus lived the human life because it's his very life that saves us, and we need to receive that into our life this Advent season. Let's look at the second one. This idea that Jesus gives hope to our life's dark and mundane experiences. And and we're going to see this in Isaiah 9. We read it this morning, but we're going to go back there. Um, Isaiah 9. One and two. Sorry. Got on the wrong one. Okay. Okay. Uh, You don't have to stand. We're just going to go through this quick. Um, So this is what Isaiah writes as he's prophesying the birth of Christ 800 years before Jesus is born. And he writes, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies 
along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So in this context, we're starting to hear more about the life of Jesus, the human life of the Son of God. This idea that a great light is going to shine is referring to the light of the world that we just lit this candle uh, for. So the light of the world, it's this prophecy that this light will come. Now, the context of of, uh, Galilee, which is what Isaiah is referring to here, and it hadn't happened yet, but this whole area, northern Israel is where Galilee is and was, um, this land was going to be wiped out by the Assyrians for their hundreds, Israel's, Galilee's, and these two tribes here, Zebulun and Naphtali, they had committed idolatry, murder, idol worship, um, all kinds of stuff for hundreds and hundreds of years, and God's patience wore out, and he sends the Assyrians in to conquer the land and exile the people. So this area of Galilee had experienced just incredible darkness uh, for many, many years, up until the time of Jesus's, Jesus's life. Now, it was resettled, um, but it was a mixed group of people. It wasn't just Israelites. And then Samaria comes uh, from that, which we see in Jesus' ministry as well, where they were seen as racially inferior uh, to the Israelites. So, what we see is... Uh, this future life that Jesus was going to live in Galilee would bring light. We know that Jesus lived in Galilee. He lived specifically in Nazareth, which was in Galilee. And in Jesus' day, not only had this area experienced a lot of darkness through Assyria and different things throughout its history, but even in Jesus' day, Galilee was very much considered Uh, the area that was on the wrong side of the tracks. You guys ever heard that term? We don't use that term anymore, but like my parents' generation, I think that was pretty common. The wrong side, I got two people. Wrong side of the tracks, you know where I'm going with this. We don't really use trains as much anymore. They turn into bike paths, which I'm grateful for. Um, But this was very much how Galilee was seen, is it was the wrong side of the tracks because it was so distant and distinct from Jerusalem. That's the narrative going on here. Jerusalem was in in many ways viewed as the pure, uh, greater than uh, area of Israel where the true Israelites lived, where goodness really came out of. And Galilee was kind of half-breeds and, and, uh, you know, not nearly as culturally relevant and uh, weren't up on the latest, um, you know, socially powerful type things, where Jerusalem was really the, the center of that. Um, so Jesus grew up in an area uh, that was seen as pretty dark and mundane. His, his community, his town, his area, unlike, say, New York City, 
or Los Angeles. Um, you know, just kind of a backwater, off the beaten path area that was seen as, eh, what do they say about him uh, in the New Testament? They say, can anything good come from Nazareth? So that's really what's going on as Jesus shows up on the scene, is this is the view of Galilee. So let's take a little deeper dive into his life just to see how normal, run-of-the-mill life that he actually lived. Because the more we understand about his context, I think the more we start to see that he actually lived a life that a lot of us can relate to and that a lot of us can connect with. And I actually think that's intentional. God could have had Jesus live in the powerful place like Jerusalem, amongst servants, amongst the powerful, but I think it was very intentional that he grew up in Galilee versus Judea. I think that was extremely intentional because I think it matters for each one of our lives as we go through the darkness and mundaneness of our normal everyday lives as well. I think it gives us hope, and we'll see why. But I want to unpack a little bit about Nazareth just so you guys get to see more of Wow, he really lived in that environment. That's crazy. I never thought of it that way. That's how I felt as I was continuing to learn. So Nazareth uh, was a town on a hillside of around 400 people. That alone was, is shocking to me. So that means that everyone knew everyone. And I just think that's important as we think about the life of Jesus. That he didn't grow up in some huge metropolitan area where he could have easily been lost in the shuffle. Everyone knew who he was and who his parents were. Uh, Nazareth was poor and a self-sustaining community. In fact, the areas around Nazareth, as they've done archaeology, that whole area of Galilee uh, was very much far... <laughs> we like the term farm-to-table, right? In Dover and Durham. and very, like, That's kind of trendy. That's more trendy than other side of the tracks. Um, farm to table, we think that's cool. I went to a farm to table restaurant last night. I, I feel good saying that personally. But, um, but in Nazareth, it was actually farm to table, okay? <laughs> and it was actually about survival, not restaurant week. So it was actually a place where if you didn't farm, you were going to die. Or if the crop wasn't good, there was no market basket, Hannaford, or Shaw's to go to. Like, these communities, we have to understand, were meal-to-meal -meal survival. Poor, self-sustaining. There were no paved roads at all in Nazareth or the surrounding area. There were no bathhouses. There were no palaces of any kind, which means this area was forgotten. It was unimportant. It wasn't invested in. The homes were simple and small. They were made with stone, brick, and mud. So yes, you can tell your, your kids this. Jesus had to share a bedroom. Probably with a lot of siblings, actually. He had a lot of brothers. So everyone worked to survive. Everyone had a trade. Nazareth is not mentioned at all in the Old Testament, which I find to be fascinating because the Savior of the world was going to spend his whole life there. Never mentioned. Insignificant place. Doesn't matter mocked. For 30 years of his life, which was seven years past life expectancy, 
And 91%, I can do some math still, 91% of Jesus' life was spent in this area. He lived a mundane life of obscurity in a town no one cared about, doing a job that no one considered special. Most likely, he didn't leave the town. He would go to work and come back home every day. That was his rhythm, most likely. We don't know much about it, but we can assume based on how hard it would have been to travel outside of Nazareth, he probably spent most of his time just in that little community of 400 people. Fascinating. Fascinating. But this is why it mattered that God sent us a human king who lived a normal human life like us until his ministry started when he was 30. I don't think... (laughs) I think it's harder to relate to his life of ministry as we see him start to do all these miracles and these crowds following him. I think we can start losing touch with him a little bit in terms of our own daily experience. But how beautiful that most of his life was spent in the trenches with us. Just in the trenches. Just day-to-day survival. I I just love that. I love that. God did not have to do it that way. And here's why it matters. I don't think that his light, that the light we see in Isaiah, started shining in Galilee only when his ministry started. I think, it's, I think, you, can assume, I think you can have the wrong thinking that that's what happened, that somehow the light that Isaiah is talking about here that was shining in Galilee only started when his ministry started, when he... Uh, when he when he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue and started preaching, only then was the light of the world arriving. I don't think that's what we see in Isaiah. No, I think, and we know, that Jesus was fully God and fully man his entire life in Nazareth. What we see in Isaiah is when did the light that's being referred to actually shine? Well, if you go down in Isaiah 9, 6, and we read this in the beginning of the, of the service, the light shines when, for unto us, if anyone loves Handel's Messiah, as you listen to this song today, I think, think of it this way. For a child is born unto us, a son is given. In my mind, those are the most beautiful words in Isaiah. For unto us, a child is born, a son is given. A child is born, a son is given. And in my mind, that's when the light of the world shines. That's when the light of the world comes onto the scene. Which means his entire life in Nazareth, going through the motions of everyday life, everyday struggles, dealing with annoying siblings, dealing with a job that was challenging, I'm sure, and and physically demanding and not very rewarding. The light of the world was still shining even if the people of Nazareth didn't see it yet. It was still shining. In fact, we know his family, even though they grew up with him, they didn't see his light, most of them, until much later in their lives. And this changes everything for us as Christians as we go about our times of darkness and mundaneness. As we clock in and and sit at the desk we don't want to be at, can anyone relate to that? As we try to break up the latest irrational toddler battle, can anyone relate to that? As we wrestle through the latest marital conflict, has anyone ever had a marital conflict? We got some hands in the back. 
As we return home to the house, we wish we're bigger. As we dig down to find the courage to endure the latest health issue. Anyone relate to that? As we wrestle through our experience of depression or our experience of chronic anxiety. As believers, we must remember that the life of Jesus Christ, just like it did in Nazareth, still shines bright in and through us in the midst of every one of the circumstances I just mentioned. And I think this gives hope to every dark and mundane situation we find ourselves in or we will find ourselves in and how we actually engage with those situations. We start to ask different questions. We start to look at it in different ways. Instead of despair and hopelessness, which I can completely tend to when life is hard with all of those different situations I just described, I can start asking different questions, engaging with these things in different ways. As I see Jesus, what must have his life been like for all those years in Nazareth, mundane, poor, dirty, smelly town, the light of the world is shining. The light of the world is shining. Things are happening. Fruit is about to be born in all of Galilee and Judea and then to all the ends of the earth. So I start asking questions like, what might Jesus be doing in this situation I find myself in? What's he up to? That's a hopeful question. How is he going to work this out? I don't know, but that's a hopeful question. What incredible fruit will he in time bear from this darkness and mundane experience I'm in? What will the fruit look like? How will he use this in my life for his glory? Was God glorified by Jesus' life in Nazareth? I think he was. Praise God that he has fulfilled his promise of sending us a Savior who is fully God and fully man, so that we might be saved by his life and given hope for every dark and mundane situation we face. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and this reminder that you were fully human, that you lived a fully human life um, in circumstances that so many of us can relate to. Uh, Lord, in, in a, a job we don't necessarily love with family that doesn't necessarily get us um, with uh, poverty, with, with a house that's maybe not huge, with uh, struggles, with different issues, Lord, that you can relate to because you lived it out. Thank you that you are a Savior like this. You weren't some angelic being that was disconnected from our daily experience, but, and Lord, this just gives us so much hope. <clears throat> also, thank you that you lived the perfect life, God, that none of us can live. Thank you that we can receive that gift this Advent season through the Holy Spirit by asking you into our life to give us your righteousness because we can't create our own. Thank you for this, Jesus. In your name, amen.